Welcome, everyone, to Speaking of Art. I'm your host, Edwin Hoffman, and this is the show that explores the world of art, antiques, music, literature, and film, academically, commercially, and from the artist's perspectives. Um, thank you, Derek, for playing that music. I just wanted to start uh, the show a little bit differently today by uh, playing one of the most beautiful themes, I think, from uh, an American classic film from the 1930s, and that one, as you probably already recognize, is from Frank Capra's 1937 release, Lost Horizon, from the James uh, Hilton novel. Uh, I'm going to sort of like dwell on a couple of films today and, and move on to, to the fine art, uh, but I just wanted to begin with this, with this film. Uh, I saw a sort of like revisited a couple of favorite movies of mine uh, from the 30s, sort of starting with Lost Horizon. The other one was The 39 Steps by Alfred Hitchcock over the last week. And I'd seen them before. And, you know, and, and sometimes you know, when you, you you get to know a movie over a period of time, you don't see it for a while, and, and then you see it again, everything is ripe, and you're just sort of like ready for it. And I was so ready for it. I, I don't know whether it's because of all the things that have been going on in the world and then what happened today with this uh, new war in, um, with Israel uh, and Hamas, what's going on, what's breaking out, what's breaking out in so many um, unstable places in the world. Uh, and it makes you wonder, oh my gosh, what, what kind of world do I live in? What kind of, what can I look forward to? What, what do I have control over in my life? And just by luck, I just sort of was, was looking at these these films. And I, I, I wanted to play the music from that. And, and by the way, the composer was Dmitry Tiomkin, who, one of the great, like on one hand, of the greatest cinematic composers uh, from the 1930s into the 60s. And um, John Waxman, um, uh, I'm sorry, Franz Waxman, being another, Max Steiner, um, Korngold, and, and many others. Uh, in fact, we've we've spoken with John Waxman, the son of Franz Waxman, on a couple of occasions on this on this show. Uh, but the way that Tiomkin's music uh, imparts a mood to that film, which is carried all the way through that beautiful film, I just wanted to start uh, today. It was it's a film just to sort of set you up with it, and just just very briefly, it came from a book that came out in 1935 by James Hilton, and it talks about Shangri-La. Uh, this Buddhist lamasery, temple complex, valley, villages down below, uh, all hidden away, high in the Himalayas, um, actually really on the, um, maybe probably the Kamakura Mountains, uh, around Tibet, uh, on far western Tibet. Uh, and this, at that time, and actually even in, until sort of recent decades, parts of it relatively unexplored. Uh, well, Hilton sort of like grabbed onto this as a, as sort of like a place of calm in a very turbulent world. As you know, in 1935, people were already talking about, you know, the, um, uh, revisiting of, of world war, you know, after world war one, and you had the triumph of fascism, uh, in several company, uh, several countries. Uh, you had it, of course, in Germany, Italy first, and Germany and Japan, uh, and then other countries, also Spain. Uh, so politically, the world was in great upheaval, uh, which didn't seem to affect us right away. But I think Americans generally, not just political leaders, but Americans generally realized that the drift was not good 
by the 1930s, by the early to mid 1930s. And they hear the speeches and all that. And the New York Times, by the way, did an incredible job reporting on the um, entrenchment of fascism uh, from the early 30s all the way through the decade. Uh, and in, and I know that because I've, I've actually read quite a bit of that. And I remember when I was starting my career in the art world, um, a job that I had at, at um, a Washington, D.C. auction house, there was a... a um, a, a lot that, that that came in from a collector or his, or his estate. It was a huge mound of New York Times newspapers from the 30s, be, beginning in 1932, early 1933. And, you know, cataloging this, I had plenty of time to really look these over. And I realized that this was some of the first reporting from a major New York newspaper uh, about the election in Germany in 1932 and uh, Hitler's victory as chancellor, and then later on, the abolishment of the presidency by him and basically assuming dictatorial powers and all this. And I was astounded at how accurate the reporting was at the time and also how ominous it was and the commentary that was being written about uh, in those um, those issues at the time. And... Um, yeah, I just it was just a very turbulent world and would become more so in going up to World War II. And I wanted to think of something that was you know, a very calm influence at that time. And by the time Lost Horizon was released in 1937, the drift toward war, uh, the instability, the, uh, the expansion of Germany and Europe, you know, the threat now, uh, and, you know, the, the coalition was forming out of fear already. Uh, of what might, what was probably going to have, what, what was probably going to happen, that that movie came out at a time uh, that urged uh, a sort of pacific view of how to deal with this, which seemed into to our eyes today and our ears today seems very out of tune with what was actually really going on in the entrenchment of those governments, uh, totalitarian governments in Europe. In fact, when the movie was re-released in 1941, around the time of a clip that I'm going to play for you, not from the movie itself, but from a Lux Radio uh, broadcast that Ronald Coleman, the, the star of the film, uh, did in 1941, uh, that same year, Lost Horizon was re-released to American theaters. And it had about 25 minutes taken out of the film because it was thought to be too pacifist. Uh and when you that has been restored painstakingly over decades as all the different prints because it, the original uh, print had had just deteriorated quite a bit, and so um, I'm trying to think of Rialto Pictures or or others we featured them actually on the show about ten years ago. Uh, the restoration work was painstaking to put that film back together again. It, it, it the original good prints had so desiccated over the years. That they basically searched the world for you know issues that had gone out to different theaters and taken what they could use and put it all back together again. So I think everything is there for, except seven minutes. And so when you when you buy it, say from Criterion Collection or something, which does a marvelous job uh, with these cla- classic films and the prints that are used, they put in the stills that were done, photographic stills that were taken at the time of the film's production. You see the actors there. So you will see for about seven minutes 
in various parts of uh, of the film images of the stars still images while you hear the soundtrack so the whole thing is there except for seven minutes and they fill that in with these still photographs but 25 minutes were taken out of the film because it was thought to be too pacifistic for the times and and, and in many ways you can understand why that why that is but it is such a beautiful film that when i looked at it the other day the black and white cinematography the flow of the film this is i think really frank capra's masterpiece i mean you think it's a wonderful life uh and just all his other output all into the 60s for me this film i think is it because i i, I think what it does it, it it shows just before that threshold of war was crossed uh a little bit of 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 calm before the hurricane that maybe there's a chance to avoid this thing that maybe the world is finally getting its act together after world, 20 years after world war one and that maybe there is some hope and as it turned out to be that was forlorn uh it would not work out but it's just it's it's kind of like a, a i think a beautiful expression you know of optimism in a way even though in some ways it it was naive and i wanted to actually capture a clip from the film of ronald coleman uh giving his i'm going to sink my battleships to john howard who's playing his his brother who is not nearly as enlightened as as coleman's um robert conway in this uh, the brothers are very close. They work together and stuff. But 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 John Howard's character just he just doesn't understand what his older brother is talking about when it comes to to world peace. I think we can take it, you know, for what it is when we listen to that whole fabulous speech about putting down arms uh, and and sort of like appreciating the effort that was that was made uh, at that time. Just no matter how things work out eventually. Uh, and the opportunities lost and in the war and how horrific that is and what needs to be done and marshaled to be able to put down a horrible, grotesque aggressor. Uh, I think it stands on its own legs as being just a, a beautiful artistic expression of hope. I urge you to see that movie. If you have never seen it, you're in for a real treat. Uh, and if you've seen it before and it's been a long time, I think that you'll appreciate it in in light of what I've said about it. In, in fact, if you call in, uh, you know, either now or, or later on, uh, maybe after you've seen it, sort of cinematic homework from Speaking of Art from your host, Ed Hoffman, uh, you can tell me what you think, uh, and I'd be delighted. I, I might as well give the, the phone number 822-1600 um, if you have any comments on it. I think that you will be struck by the beguiling beauty of that film, uh, just visually and musically. And I cannot think of a better film, and there are lots that I can think of, but I can't think of a better film that marshaled sounds together better than Lost Horizon. From Tiomkin's music to Frank Happer's direction to the fabulous black and white cinematography to the largest set that had ever been um, created, uh, I think by was it Paramount Studios, or I'm, I might be wrong with that one. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting that. But for that studio, it was the largest set that had been created on their lot, the Shangri-La set. It is absolutely a magnificent evocation of the uh, European streamlined Art Deco style. And when you look at it today, it just amazes you. And you're thinking of the windows all the way at the top, 
right underneath the soffits of the roof. And you're saying, I'd love to be in that room. And I, th- and I think that they actually built the interior of that because there are scenes in it where you know where you are in that building because you've seen the facade. It is so beautifully done. So if you've seen movies like, say, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and The Gay Divorcee from, say, a year or so, uh, no, 1934, and that beautiful uh, pavilion scene of the resort, the outdoor dancing, you think that was impressive. Take a look at the Shangri-La scene. Uh, outdoor, what it looks like close up from the facade as they approach it. And then you see it several times through the movie. How magnificently beautiful it is. And what a, what a beautiful evocation, though, of the um, streamlined art, de- art Deco style. They came over to this country, by the way, Richard Neutra and others. In time, though, in the 1940s, it, be- it, it just as an aside, it was tamed uh, to sort of like match American tastes for bringing you know the, the color of natural woods in uh maybe harkening back to the 1600s and the 1700s with beautiful pine sheathing and whatever the natural wood happened to be even redwood whatever being used to clad uh you know houses and you know e- even public buildings so the severity of the european style cedes to the american more natural look by the time we get to the 1940s. But it's just a wonderful transference of an art style that comes over here and what we do with it. Anyway, I wanted to, to start with that. Derek, why don't we, I think somebody called in maybe with a with a comment. If you want to, are they on right now? Are they, are they waiting right now? Okay, let's get to them and then let's listen to Ronald Coleman in a moment. Welcome to Speaking of Art. Hey, go ahead and play the clip first, okay? You want me to play, is this Ed? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Ed, I wanted to tell you, because I, I said this to um, to Derek last week at the end of my show, and I, I, I'm sorry, I, I came all the way up to the end of the show, and I wanted to say how great your commentary was. You were, you were talking about history and everything. You did a marvelous job with that. I just wanted to say that that was, that was terrific in last, last week's show. Um, Ed, one Ed to another, you just bring me to tears. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Let's play the wrong. It was a wonderful. Let's so let's get let's let, let me set this one up, Ed, and I think you're going to appreciate this, and I think the listeners too. Um, sometimes it's hard to get a really good sound thing when I take it off, say, of YouTube or wherever it is from the film. So what I did was I went to the Lux Radio broadcast that was um, originally broadcast, I think, in um, I think January of 1941. It was before we get into the war, uh, where Ronald Coleman reprises his role as Robert Conway, in law, originally named Hugh Conway in the book, but Robert Conway from Lost Horizon in the 1941 broadcast. Derek, let's play that. Oh, music. We seem to be at the top. We shall rest here a moment before we descend into the valley. Are we almost there? The dangers of our journey are quite over. If you will look below toward the head of the valley... You can see the Lamasery of Shangri-La. Shangri-La. It was a strange and incredible sight. A group of colored pavilions clinging to the mountainside, like flower petals impaled upon a crag. It was superb and exquisite. The eye was carried upward from the milk-blue roofs to the gray rock looming tremendously overhead. Beyond that, in a dazzling pyramid, soared Caracal. It was the most beautiful and the most terrifying mountainscape in the world. I don't remember how we arrived at the Lamasery. The thin air had a dreamlike texture. 
and with every breath, I took in a deep anesthetizing tranquility. But I do remember a strange sensation, half mystical, half visual, of having reached at last some place that was an end, a finality. Ed, welcome to Speaking of Art. And, and that, by the way, that broadcast on September 15th, 1941. Um, ladies and gentlemen, calling in Ed Bondarenko, uh, my wonderful colleague and uh, fellow host here at uh, Wham Radio. Hi, Ed. Ronald Coleman. I mean, you know, nobody else talks like that. I wonder if he practiced <laughs> to talk like Ronald Coleman, you know? You know what? He's 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 a, a human musical instrument. I mean, like any like any great singer w- w- with a very distinctive voice. He just happened to be a, a prose actor. I actually don't know whether he did any recordings, any any singing. Uh, other actors did who had very mellifluous voices, like George oh, Sanders, like Basil Rathbone, what, Basil Rathbone, George Sanders. They were wonderful singers. Um, I think oh, Christopher Lee. Toward the mm-hmm. end of his life in the '90s, did fabulous recordings of opera. You know, I don't know whether Ronald Coleman did it, but my, you're absolutely right. What a velvety voice that almost seems impossible to be able to achieve as a spoken voice. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Exactly. Well, he was in. Um, 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 oh my goodness! Uh, Tale of Two Cities, right? Yes. Yes. I forget his closing words exactly. You know what I mean? I. It's just amazing. Well, there's something like, the voice. it's but, a far, far better thing I do than I have you. ever done. Something like you that, start, right? Just like him. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and then I can do. So you started out talking about the 39 steps, and I didn't see the tie-in to that, which is another film that I'm, I'm really... I'm going to get to that. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, you know, it's kind of interesting because before I ever saw the 39 steps, I listened to a record album by a group called the Fire Sign Theater that mm. kind of made a homage to that, a comedy album that was a radio drama. Fire Sign Theater used to do these radio dramas that were really great, and, mm-hmm. and they were often referred to old films. And I didn't realize the one that they were, one of them that I was listening to was actually an homage to uh, the 39 Steps. So back to Lost Horizon. I mean, to think that that movie was made, I mean, that book was written in 35 or 33 and then made into a movie in, you know, such short time, you know, is, is, uh, that's, that's an incredible in itself. It must have been a very popular book. But this movie is so unlike anything else by Frank, Frank Capra. I mean, it's like Frank Capra had this running theme through all his movies, the little guy. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. versus the establishment. Uh, mm-hmm. And and this was just, I remember seeing this as a kid, as a young boy, black and white TV, and it had quite the effect on me. I really <laughs> thought there was a place called Shangri-La. I mean, I almost saw this as a documentary. Well, it, was so influent- it was so influential that Franklin Roosevelt named the Catoctin Mountain Retreat Shangri-La. It was only until Eisenhower... As you know, we're, he named it after his grandson, Camp David. But prior yeah, to that, he Roosevelt called it Shangri-La. 
It's hard to believe the movie's called Lost Horizon because forever I refer to it as Shangri La. You know <laughs> that you know you said it was so it must have been so popular. It was in in fact it came out in paperback first. Uh, I think it was Pocket Books first issued book. So yeah, among book collectors, they say I want Pocket Book One, and Pocket Book wow. One was Lost Horizon. And the reason why, if you're a collector at all, why you want the paperback edition, not only because it's more ephemeral and ephemeral and, and it's, you know, less stable and there aren't as many good examples of it, is because the cover art was lovely. You know, the hardcover, that's not much. You know, that dust jacket. But what we see in the paperback version is lovely. And it just it invites you to go right into it. And, um, no, it was, it was, it was really that popular. You know, another one that's an, we're just sort of going, here we are talking about cinema and I've got Seshu Toyo and all this, but I'm, I'm so glad you're, you're on to give you a sense of the rapidity with which Hollywood can just land on a book of original material that they want to make into a movie is Lever to Heaven. Lever to Heaven came out 19, oh, yeah. it, it came out in 1945. The book was published by Ben Ames Williams in 1944. And it almost got Gene Tierney the Oscar. Mildred Pierce with Joan Crawford, of course, got it. But right behind her was, I think, Gene Tierney's greatest performance. It's also one of the most beautiful Technicolor films ever made, certainly of the, 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 the mid-40s. Uh, and that book went right to, um, to, to, to film. And beautifully so. Absolutely. I introduced that to a, th- to a theater audience once, and I asked everybody to raise their hands for the people who are seeing it for the first time. We just all. saw it a couple weeks ago. Did you really? Yeah, TCM, well, I think. Well, you're going to think I'm very sentimental and, 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 and funny with this, but I, I said that you will remember seeing, the, say, I envy you, because you will remember seeing this film for the first time the way that you remember seeing You Met Your Significant Other. And you will, something very profound and wonderfully profound in your life that you will wish that you could see it with those fresh eyes again. Because it, you will come back to it many times, but you'll wish that you could see it the first time again. Hey, you're coming up on break. Can you hold me over? I hate to ask that, but... Uh... Yeah, yeah, like, uh, please. Uh, thank you very much, Ed. I, I, I appreciate it. Everybody, we have gone on, uh, I, I think, a delightful digression. I guess as a host, I guess I can call it that. I hope you feel the same way. Uh, talking about the arts in general, but film, and then we'll get a, a little bit to the Asian art that this is sort of like inspiring uh, with Ed Bondaranka, uh, my uh, friend and uh, co- uh, and fellow host here at Wham Radio. You're listening to Speaking of Art. I'm your host, Edwin Hoffman. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Welcome back, everyone, to Speaking of Art. I'm your host, Edwin Hoffman, coming to you live from the Wham! Studios on Packard Road in beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'll tell you, if you're not inspired by the fall weather that has suddenly descended upon us, uh, the rain that came, <laughs> greeted me as I came in, then uh, seeding to blue sky again and sun, uh, only here in Michigan, huh? Uh, boy, I'll tell you, the fall, the trees, everything going out and about, uh, I'll tell you, just do it and be be inspired. 
everything from the moon that I talked about last week to um, just a conversation I'm having right now. I, th- this show was structured, everybody, but we are having a very um, – uh, wonderful digression uh, today. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, Ed Bondarenka, my um, uh, colleague here at WAM uh, Radio and uh, the host of uh, Your American Heritage, it called in. And we're talking about kind of like the film that I highlighted at the, at the beginning, Lost Horizon, Frank uh, Capra's 1931 classic. And then a little bit about the 39 steps, and then if we have time, going into some other things. But Ed, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. You know, one thought that I had about Lost Horizon, particularly from the opening of the movie, where all the passengers are trying to get <laughs> yeah. out, and there's this DC-3, which was rather a modern aircraft at the time, later mm-hmm. went on to become what the paratroopers jumped out of uh, over Normandy, the C-47 Skytrain, and then later... Uh, uh, into the 80s was delivering axles into Detroit, and, you know, air freight, uh, they're still... You know, DC-3's flying today, mm-hmm. you know. I, it's funny that you say that. I went to a, a, a sort of an obscure airfield in New Jersey one day when I was back from college with a good friend of mine who was still living in the area to pick up his father from a business trip. And we go up to the field, and there it is. It's that, that DC-3. He, he he came off, and we just went in just to look around, and by God, it still had curtains on the windows. Wow. It was it and it was still a commercial thing. It wasn't like it was some you know collector's plane and you know, vintage you know uh, aircraft. No, it, it wasn't was doing still dusting. being used, and it was you know that's my theory. Just as a little aside, flight wow. has been brought down to just there isn't any elegance about it at all. We need to bring that back, and I think we start by putting curtains back on the windows. <laughs> In airplanes of whatever kind, not just shades that are plastic and you pull them down, but actual little pleated curtains. What do you think? You think I'm going in the right direction with that? That that and a dress code. <laughs> <laughs> but to get and, and this is I'm saying that from when I was in the Air Force and I used to fly commercial and I'd wear cutoffs in a tank top and it used to drive the other team leaders nuts because they were wearing ascots and mm. you know dressing up and I was. Not. <laughs> I was I was the team leader that dressed up, you know, casual, and, and I regret that now. But regardless, so what happens is they get on this DC-3 and it gets hijacked. So there's this, this, there's this uh, political upheaval, and everybody's afraid for their lives. And then they get on the plane and it's hijacked, mysteriously hijacked. And it's very reminiscent of the pulp novels of the day. The mm-hmm. Doc Savage books, the uh, oh, yes. the Shadow, the origins of the Batman, stuff happening in the Orient, mysterious Orient, you know? And the plane is hijacked, and they're going they know not where, and it seems like there's this, this organization that sees that they're refueling on the route who has this mysterious power. That's one I of mean, my favorite scenes in the film, by the way. When they, they, they come they come down somewhere in California is where they filmed it, I think. But you, you think that you're in you Tibet. You for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you just, you know, but no, no, it's not. It's You know what they that they did, Ed, just to let you know. It, the, the movie was filmed in black and white. They wanted to do it in Technicolor. Capper wanted color. They, they they couldn't do it because he wanted to, he had to put in Himalayan footage from a recent documentary and that was in black and white so he decided to go all black and white but that that scene when the DC three lands on those flats with the mountains behind and you have this 
the tribe of either um, you know nomads. nomads there ready for it to refuel it in the way the the horns are being blown. They're you know riding out on their horses and stuff. I thought it was magnificent. Now go ahead. Well, and exactly. And the question is, who organized? What mysterious force? <laughs> Could organize this this kidnapping, you know, this this uh, taking of these people from their path, and they end up, of course, in Shangri La, and and the whole mysteriousness of the setting is just, you know, could there be such a place at at that time? There certainly could be because there were areas that were unknown to us. Yes, there there were, and up as I said, up until about maybe twenty five years ago, when an explorer, if you remember, I think a member of the Explorers Club in New York, um, found a valley that had not been charted in Tibet. Maybe it's about twenty five years ago now, and they ah. were they were herald, heralding that it was in the news, saying it's probably the last uh, unknown, undiscovered part of the world. And um, I thought that was oh, that, that that was you know that, that that was neat. I think we need that. I think we need psychically. I, I touched on this last week. You know the idea of having a frontier. How it how it fueled American art in the nineteenth century. Um, you know the, the mysterious kind of like to name a movie where the sidewalk ends. Mm-hmm. And I think if you could use a movie title to characterize Edward Hopper's paintings from the nineteen twenties, you know through into the 60s it would be touching on that darkness that mysterious obscurity where the sidewalk ends that i think is in our national psyche and i think that we should identify that i I think we should identify it as a strength um now why don't we go to the 39 steps ed can you hold on with me for for another couple minutes happy to as long as you you don't mind yeah let's Derek, let's play the clip. Now, The 39 Steps is a film that came out in 1935 when Alfred Hitchcock was still in England. Uh, he came over to Hollywood finally in 1939 after completing what many consider his real masterpiece prior to coming uh, to the United States, um, uh, The Lady Vanishes. I think, however, The 39 Steps, certainly probably one of the most influential films of the 20th century, the idea of the wrongly accused man not seeking help from the authorities, but trying to find the perpetrator himself and, and, and to, to clear his name. <laughs> right. So you see the 39 steps. You're seeing an earlier version of Saboteur with Robert Cummings in 1942 and certainly Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint in 1959 North West. in North by Northwest. Uh, it stands alone, though, as it's an absolutely beautiful classic. And the thing, Ed, that I loved about The 39 Steps, when um, Chrissy and I were watching it uh, the other night, uh, was how modern it looks, even to our... Uh, it, at first, you think, oh, this is an old black and white. But you get into it, and the fabulous language and the rapidity of the um, camera work, and just just the storyline flow, and the caliber of the actors, led by Robert Donat, uh, it is... It seems like a very modern film, and that that surprised me on this last watching. But let's let's listen to Robert Donat. He's fleeing, of course, the police because he's he's got this job to do to clear his name, and he has to avoid them. He walks into a political rally, and he is mistaken as the guest speaker, as the speaker of the night, a politician. Uh, and he gives this what I think, for, Ed, to you denizens of the political world and commentators and stuff. I think could even be used today. Let's listen to a portion of this by by Robert Dunat, 1935, 
the 39 steps. When I journeyed up to Scotland a few days ago, traveling on the Highland Express over that magnificent structure, the fourth bridge, that monument to Scottish engineering and Scottish muscle. That is to say, on that journey, I had no idea that in a few days' time I should find myself addressing an important political meeting. No idea. I planned a very different program for myself. A very different program. You'd be for the moors to shoot something. Yes, or somebody. I'm a rotten shot. <laughs> Anyhow, I little thought I should be speaking tonight in support of that that, that brilliant young statesman, that, that rising... Uh, uh, the, the, the gentleman on my right, already known among you as one destined to make no uncertain mark in politics. In other words, your future member of parliament, your candidate, Mr. Uh, McCrocodile. Does they know the candidate's name? <laughs> I know your candidate will forgive my referring to him by the, the friendly nickname by which he's already known in anticipation, uh, in anticipation, mark you, at uh, Westminster. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to discuss some topic. What shall it be? The herring fishery. Unemployment. What about the idle rich? Idle rich? That's a bit of an old-fashioned topic these days, especially for me, because I'm not rich and I've never been idle. <laughs> I've been pretty busy all my life, and I expect to be much busier quite soon. Have you ever worked for your hands? Indeed I have, and I've known what it is to feel lonely and helpless and to have the whole world against me. And those are things that no man or woman ought to feel. And I ask your candidate and all those who love their fellow men to set themselves resolutely to make this world a happier place to live in. A world where no nation plots against nation, where no neighbor plots against neighbor, where there is no persecution or hunting down, where everybody gets a square deal and a sporting chance, and where people try to help and not to hinder. A world from which suspicion and cruelty and fear have been forever banished. That is the sort of world I want. Is that the sort of world you want? <laughs> Ed, filming a scene like that, with that kind of dialogue, delivered all at once, uh, my gosh. I'll tell you, that's a challenge even for actors today. Uh, did you, I'm sorry, did I miss where you set the scene up, how he got into that position, what he was doing? Yeah, it, well, it, it, it's funny, he's fleeing the police who are... Unfortunately, the chief of police in the town is friends, doesn't know that his good friend who lives in the manse a few miles away actually is the leader of the 39 steps. And he's the one who's going to try. And that's, I don't want to give too, too, too much of it away, but he's going to spear it out, kind of like James Mason in, well, in, the, the in, in, in North by Northwest. He's going to leave the country soon with this secret uh about the um uh the raf you know, british uh, aeronautical secret memory or mr memory Be, in mr memory and, and that whole thing okay well he realized he can't go to the police so he, jo- he, he he's he's fleeing them he gets into a parade he marches with that a little bit then he goes in this the side door uh and he walks right into this political rally, kind of a local political rally for a, a, a local guy who's running for parliament. And he's sort of like a seasoned, you know, he's to be the guest speaker to introduce this candidate. That's what they, everybody mistakes him for the, the hosts bring him right in, put him right on the stage. And there's that marvelous moment when it's, it's his turn to speak and everybody's looking at him and he finally realizes what's going on. And he gives that, 
that 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 fabulous speech with all the innuendos i didn't expect to be in this as i crossed the um uh the the bridge uh into scotland the other night that's actually where he jumped off the train and where the manhunt began so he even gives a little clue about that it's the dialogue the script is just absolutely marvelous and the way robert Annette does it is just a gem Yes, and like like in the speech he's given, there are allusions to his own situation. And exactly. It's he, of course, he can't remember the guy's name. He never knew it. You know? and he's he's looking at hilarious. the he's a, he's looking at the poster in front of him, but it's upside down, and so he that's why he, he pronounces it that way. But anyway, it's it's just one of these movies that you you have to watch. And his co-star Madeline Carroll, I think, is the first example Ed of. The Hitchcockian, what they call sort of like the ice princess blonde sort of thing. Very, very beautiful, very reserved, unapproachable, unobtainable. Uh, but their repartee back and forth. There, there is a scene in that movie when they're both lying on the bed because they're handcuffed together. The bad guys have caught them. They manage to escape, and that's a tour de force in and of itself. But they're able to hide out in some sort of country inn. As man and wife, they're posing. Mm-hmm. He's threatened her not to say anything. So they're up in the in the bed because here they are. They're shackled together, trying to use a file to get free. And he is regaling her because she thinks he's a hardened criminal, a murderer, because he's wanted in the papers and all that. And he's sort of like giving this whole fictional story to make her think that. And there is at one point he says, "You'll see me in Madame Tussauds. You'll be able to take your chicks there one day, and you'll be able to point them out there. I'll be second from the left as you walk in the door, <laughs> that sort of thing." And at some point she turns, and I have to think that she's actually laughing because of the way that he's. It's almost like a thing from Saturday Night Live where they can't help themselves and they just <laughs> yeah, sort of laugh. Yeah. It is. It, it's. It's just a marvelous, marvelous film. And again, very modern once you get into it uh, and appreciate it. And it's it, yes exactly, and it's so episodic. Now, now the English uh, and the the accents make it difficult for some people. That's what that's why God invented subtitles. You know, <laughs> I don't, you know, it's funny. I don't think I don't know if you can if you can get English subtitles for the English film of the Thirty Nine Steps, so you can understand the Scottish dialect a little bit more. It, because right. there is, you know, what you bring up a great point, Ed. That that film. Prior to World War II and the Blitz, when a lot of these places were destroyed in London, in, in the East End, that film by Hitchcock, The 39 Steps, gives you a very good recreation of the English music hall environment, where many people of the working class, um, of sort of rising television. middle class, it was their vaudeville it was where they went to the local theater if they were in London. Any number of, 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 of theaters, London Palladium, there were, there were others. The, the movie actually begins, as you know, in kind of like a pretty tatty uh, sort of music hall. And all the, all the men in the back by the bar, they raise their, 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 um, uh, their mugs at the same time. You know, to, because there's this repartee going back and forth with the people on the stage all the time. It's kind of like Parliament. They'll interrupt, they'll insult, they'll heckle the whole thing. It is so accurately done that it actually is a treasure to be able to see it because most of these places were destroyed in the Blitz in the, in the early part of World War II, and that environment was lost, and that entertainment was largely lost. Luckily, television came up to sort of scoop it up in British mm-hmm. comedy, Spike Lee and all the others. That environment died in World War II, and Hitchcock was able to record it five years before in the 39 Steps. 
and he did a marvelous job with it. I see. You know, there's another movie that Hitchcock did at that time, the original, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which I, I often compare this to. But The 39 mm. Steps is, is so episodic. He, he goes from one thing to another. You, you know, from the frying pan to the fire, back in the frying pan and the fire, and he ends up in a cottage, in an inn, on a train, yes, in yes. a music hall. And like I was saying, there's this album, comedy <laughs> album from this group called the Fire Science Theater that I listened to back in, it came out in 69, and, and they did something like that. They took a very comedic approach to it as a radio drama, not radio drama, radio comedy, and uh, I never grasped what they were doing until I saw this movie. And, uh, well, it, it, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's a great movie. It's a, it's great. a great movie, and I, th- I think we're, we're really talking it up, and I hope that the, uh, the audience will, will, will revisit it again, and also, and also Lost Horizon. And Ed, I got to say, just as as a fellow host, right here at WAM, I I have to confess to you that after I do a broadcast, after this show, the curtain falls at four o'clock, and then Theron comes on, and all the music begins, which I think is the best musical yeah. block of radio anywhere in the yep. country. Yep. Um, so I'm very privileged to be able to start sort of like the the creative soft side of WAM, so to speak. Um, I feel like Mr. Memory at the end of the Thirty Nine Steps. Where the poor guy is dying, right? But he was able to divulge the secret of what he had been forced to memorize. And he says, it's so good to get it off my mind. <laughs> and yeah. after, after the energy of a broadcast, you just kind of melt a little bit and you feel kind of good. I don't know whether. Well, that, you're that's me, like buddy. It. And here I am calling in and doing helping and not helping, but doing your show with you. And I think, ah, geez, I, I thought I was burned out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ed, Ed Bondaranga, uh, Thanks for having thank me. you so you much, I'm creator and host of Your American Heritage. Thank you for joining me, Ed, very much for all those wonderful comments. Yeah, that's, again, that's, that's what it's about. It's, we don't live in, in tin cans by ourselves and vacuums and stuff. We, we have to talk about culture and what inspires us of beauty or ugliness or what challenges us, what endangers us, uh, or like Lost Horizon, you know, what seems to sort of clear the air. And makes us think of calm things. I think it was what Cary Grant would always used to say, happy thoughts. And not in a trite kind of way, but it's kind of like a foundation that we always have. We, we don't have to deal with what we have to deal with every day. But the foundation of us should be built on knowing our own value and our own creative power. That that is the last redoubt. And from that foundation, we're always able to become reborn in ourselves to be out there and to be communicating with other people that's what it's really all about i'm looking at derek right now but i know i can see all of you out there derek's through the double glass and he makes sure everything runs all right for me but i think this is an example with ed talking with us a few minutes ago about what what radio is what radio can do and why radio endures that, that theater of the mind, I think, is, you know, we all know sort of like that, that expression. But there is something so immediate about a person's voice, as if they're right there in your own house. And like I ensconce myself in an overstuffed chair in your house, and we look at art together. We talk about art. We talk about movie, what, movies, whatever it is. There's something extremely relevant about it and uh, less processed, I think, than what we, what we see and what we expect on film, television, and other you know, media, 
videos that we watch on our phones and all that sort of thing. So we bare our breasts, hosts do, and I certainly do. I think I'll keep my shirt and sweater on, but I am bearing my breast, and, and I don't care because I'm in good company. I'm in your company. Uh, thank you again, uh, Ed Bondarenko. Uh, just to let you know now, to sort of break off from that, we have a few minutes. Our wonderful guest next week is going to be a returning guest is Trudy Cox, um, the Chief Executive Officer of the Preservation Society of Newport County, also known as the Newport Mansions Preservation Society. This is one of one of the top preservation historical preservation societies anywhere in the country. And ever since I started broadcasting back in 2006, in January 2006, I think Trudy joined me maybe maybe two years afterwards. So almost through this whole sojourn on the air, Trudy Cox has joined me every year to talk about what's going on with the Newport Mansions, life around Newport, the energy that is a historical district of very much living monuments. We tell you, oh my God, Downton Abbey was was such a revelation to, to so many people. We have and have had for 100 years uh, or no, I'm sorry, 1950s. We have had since that time when this collection of historic houses and other places, gardens, green green animals, topiary garden, one of the, I think the oldest topiary garden still in existence in the United States, not New York City, in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, with all its fantastic animal, you know, topiaries uh, that are lovingly uh, preserved and maintained today. Uh, that all these properties began to be cobbled together and became the Preservation Society of Newport County. We're going to be talking about a fantastic post-COVID. Again, it's been a couple years. We talked to Trudy during COVID and what that meant. A few people were able to come into, you had to, by appointment, going into the mansions. For the first time ever since they were acquired and families lived in them, the doors were opened, all the windows were up, the awnings were on the windows, but all the all the casements were open for the sea breezes to come in those fabulous houses for the first time they became house museums that was interesting then the year afterwards and then coming up to now with a fant- having had a fantastic summer season under its belt we're going to talk about that we're going to recap the preservation society what was what's new what happened young people their you know uh their um uh, coming up uh, experiences with these beautiful houses and the fine art in them. It's a treasure trove. So I can't wait to be able to welcome Trudy back to the, sh- to the show. A couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that we had Jay Platt, the uh, owner of the Westside Bookshop, there at 113 uh, West Liberty Street here in Ann Arbor, uh, come back on. He's the person who puts on and puts on the um, uh, Antiquarian Book Fair every year. Uh, here in Ann Arbor. So it was there in the Michigan Union. We, we highlighted that. They had a fantastic turnout uh, there for the Antiquarian Book Fair, not only seasoned collectors, but young people and students. And we'll talk to Jay again to talk about that. But I'm so glad to have been able to talk with him. It was a wonderful event. We have one of the most important book fairs anywhere in the country. Happens here in Ann Arbor every year, now in October again. First it was May, I think. Now it's it's been moved. It's back to the fall, which I think is a great time of year for it. Well, what an interesting show. What a lovely show. And it, it, yes, it was a, a digression, but just a marvelous digression. And that's what radio, I think, is about. I can talk to you about Seshu Toyo, and I can talk about um, Katsukura Hokusai, the great uh, 
Japanese uh, uh, ukiyo-e uh, artist, um, looking at one of his great prints right now from 1831 from the um, well, from his fabulous uh, series, The 36 Views of Mount Fuji, his great wave off Kanagawa, which in terms of Japanese art, I think is kind of like the Mona Lisa of what we think of about Asian art. It is so well known. It is so reproduced and has been. We know it like the back of our hands. Do we really? Well, we're going to be talking about that in more detail uh, next time. But take a look at that fabulous uh, uh, work by Hokusai, The Great Wave off Kanagawa. And I'm going to give you the backstory on that uh, next uh, next week because our conversation with Trudy will be half an hour and talk a little bit about one of my favorite earlier Japanese artist, Seshu Toyo, whose winter landscape from the 1470s. If you want to bring up a single work of art from today's show, just to have with you on the device, bring this one up because we talk about modernity in film, right? That something that's old seems so new because it's such high quality. Take a look at uh, Seshu's winter landscape from the 1470s. It's in the Tokyo National Museum where you have basically 15th century cubism, cubism being developed centuries before Brock and Picasso. But you see the landscape broken up, the perspective toyed with. You see a cliff, which basically disappears as if we're going through that little passageway in Petra. Right? You've got the rocks looming all over us down these narrow passages. Well, we have that wall of rock as we're about to go up the steps to go to the pavilion, kind of like the Lamasery, in a way, the temple, uh, there in the distance. But we have this wall of rock. So we're down in kind of like a, like a, a, a fissure of, of some time or some kind of, or, or, or a canyon. And then it opens up, and he plays with the perspective, and we see mountains in the very, very far distance, which are basically just simply shapes in, with ink, ink wash. Uh, everything about it, very sharp, the water coming down. There isn't anything in this this fabulous work uh, that isn't meant to be there. It evokes the place, it evokes the shapes, the textures, and most of all, the mood and the experience of it. I hope that uh, I was able to touch a little bit on that for you today, but more about that next time. My thanks again to Ed Bondaranka. Wonderful conversation, and that's what it's all about, everybody. Remember that. Have a prosperous and artful week.